words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's important to understand that in the Bible, the the heart is really the center of the self. Um, Biblically speaking, the heart involves our thoughts, our thought life, our emotions, our feelings. And that directs the decisions that we make. So the heart is the, the, the thinking part. It's the feeling part and it's the deciding part of the human self. Uh, one writer said that the heart is the CEO of the self, according to the Bible. But it's the center. It's the, the center of the self. It's, it's the interior life, the thinking, the feeling, the deciding making part of our life. And so Jesus is saying, I don't want you disciples to have that part of you, your thoughts and your feelings, your decision making filled with trouble. Now, he's saying this. In a context where naturally they would be experiencing trouble and anxiety. This is part of Jesus's upper room discourse and it actually takes place just after the upper room. But in the upper room, Jesus has told his disciples that one of their own is going to betray him. Judas predicted Judas would betray him. He's told Peter, the rock. Before this is all over, you're going to deny me three times. And um, and so that's the context here. All of you are going to fall away on account of me, Jesus says. And so that that's what's happening here. This dark cloud of fear and tragedy is beginning to envelop the disciples. And it's in that emotional context that Jesus says, but. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And then he's going to give some reasons, and that's what we look at today, why, in spite of everything that's happening and is going to happen, they shouldn't be filled with trouble and anxiety at the center of their being. He's going to give them some promises to hang on to. And um, maybe you're here today and you're experiencing heart trouble. Maybe you're filled with some anxiety and fear. Maybe that's clouding your thinking and your feelings. Well, if so, I think these promises will will be good news for you. Uh, this this is good news for anybody who has a troubled heart. And all of us go through that, don't we? And so I want to talk about those promises today, because what Jesus is wanting us to do is to replace the trouble with the promises. So that the center of our life is not filled with this trouble and anxiety, but rather filled with the promises that he gives us in this passage. So I want to talk about three promises that Jesus makes here in John 14. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. And the first promise is that for his disciples, for those who believe in him, we will be with him forever. He's going to prepare a place for us so that we can be with him forever in the father's house. And I love the imagery that Jesus uses. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. There are many dwelling places. There's plenty of room for everyone who receives Christ. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you will also be. And so Jesus is saying, disciples, I'm going to leave you now, but I'm leaving you now so that we can be together for eternity. He's going to prepare a place for them through his death on the cross, through the cross of Christ that our sins are forgiven. It's through the cross of Christ that we're reconciled to God. It's through the cross of Christ that we can have a relationship with the holy God because of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid for us. So that's how he prepared a place for us. And then three days later, he rose again from the dead. And, and we share in that victory, that triumph over death. If we're united to Christ by faith, by trust, we have a share in that victory over death. We have the promise and the hope of eternal life. So this is how Jesus, right here on the, at, the, 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 at the verge of his passion and suffering, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's how he's going to do it, through the cross and resurrection. And that's, that's the basis of our hope. His work is the basis of our hope that we'll be with him forever. But I do love this image, this homey image. In my father's house, I'm preparing a place for you. I think we've all been there when we've been maybe on a long trip. And it's been a long day in the car and maybe into the night. In my case, with six kids. We've even done it with six kids and a dog. Isn't it a comfort to know that you're getting ready to arrive at a destination where somebody is preparing for you? Maybe a family member or a beloved friend. And you know the kind of person they are. They're, they're, they're taking time to set a meal before you and to get a bed ready for you and to put the kids in the basement for you. <laughs> a hot shower will be waiting in the morning. They've taken the time to prepare a place. And that's comfort in the journey. And it's the same with us in this life. We go through difficulty. We go through times of trial and turmoil. But there's one who loves us so much that he's prepared a place for us. A place of rest. This, this world is just a journey. We're just passing through it. But we have a heavenly place. We have a dwelling place with the Father through the Son. And I know that that hits home for us when we go through times of, of grief when we lose a loved one or when we go into our own physical suffering and difficulty. I know that hit home for one of our own this week, a Deacon Sarah, who lost her father this week. And uh, she went through that, and her family was there holding vigil with her father. And she told me, and I asked if I could share this, but she told me this week, I don't know if you remember it, Sarah, but you said, I'm, I can't wait to pray my father home. He's home. He's home because of his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is a comfort for a troubled heart. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. We can be with him in eternity with all those who share faith in Christ forever. What a great promise. Well, there's another promise that Jesus makes in this passage. Another promise that's good news for troubled hearts. And that is this. Whoever seen me has seen the Father. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. So when we see Jesus, if we believe this, if we see Jesus, we're seeing God. If we know Jesus, we know God. The more we get to know Jesus, the more we get to know God. The more we develop a relationship with Jesus, the more we have a develop a relationship with God. He reveals 
God. We don't have to wonder. What is God like? What is God the Father like if we're looking at God the Son? That's what Jesus is saying here. And then in this context, he makes a, a, a statement that's famous, but also very controversial when he says in verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. He's the way to God. He's the truth of God. He gives the life of God. And we believe this because He's risen. This is resurrection season. We're still in resurrection season. We believe this because He's risen. And not just as a historical fact, but we've experienced the risen life of Christ. And so we understand He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. But then comes the controversial part. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that sometimes is difficult in our context. And it's, it's difficult to gain a hearing for that. It sounds so exclusive in our inclusive culture. And there's a lot of things that we could say about that, but I, I found helpful a little comment in one of my study Bibles. It says this, it says, you know, this sounds narrow, but in reality, Christ is wide enough for the whole world. Because what we have in the gospel is whosoever will. John three sixteen, the whole world can receive the life of God, the life of Christ, whosoever will believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So. The study Bible note goes on and it says, instead of troubling ourselves and wringing our hands over this sounds so narrow and exclusive, we can thank God. We can praise God that he has made himself known. We can know God if we have a desire to know him, his truth and his life. He's revealed it in his son, Jesus Christ. And that's a reason to give thanks to him. We have a sure and certain way of knowing who Jesus is. Well, Philip, Philip doesn't quite get this. He's not quite processing what Jesus is talking about. And you've got to love the disciples and their comments. Thomas says, we don't know the way. What are you talking about, Jesus? And Philip, Philip then blurts out, show us the Father, Jesus. And it'll be enough. And then we'll finally be convinced. He, I, I'm not sure exactly what Philip is asking, but I think he's asking something like, um, Lord, I want you to rend the heavens open so that we can see the Father. Kind of like we read in the book of Acts, uh, this martyrdom of St. Stephen. He had this vision of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. I, I think something like that Philip is asking for. An overwhelming demonstration, a miraculous sign or vision that will convince him that, that he is one with the Father. And uh, that exacerbates Jesus just a little bit. <laughs> More than a little bit, because Jesus says, I've been with you so long. How can you say this, Philip? The works that I do are the works of God. The words that I say are the words of God, not on my own authority. So when we when we hear the words of Jesus in the Bible, when we hear them read in church, these are the words of God. They have the authority of the living God behind them. And the works that Jesus did are the works of God. His miracles, his love, his compassion, the way that he was, that's God with flesh on. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Full of grace and truth, John says at the beginning of this gospel. So in the son, we see the father. So he says, Philip, I want you to trust that I and the father are one. But here is the promise. Here's the promise for troubled hearts. We can know God. 
when we see the face of Jesus, we're seeing the face of God. And there's great security in knowing God. And knowing that you know God and that you have a relationship with the true God. I have found that the people with the most serenity, the most security, the most peace in this world are those who know that they're not going to find security and peace and ultimate happiness in this world. I have found that the people who have the most peace and security in this world are people who put their hope in God and they know God and they know his son, Jesus Christ. And they get to that place in their walk with God and in their relationship with Christ, where they can say, along with the, the psalmist, with David in Psalm 31, God, you're my rock. You're my fortress. No matter else, what else is going on in my life, I have a rock, I have a fortress, an eternal God who's holding me fast. That's where the security comes from. The people who know God. And God's made a way for that to happen. There's this theologian, Thomas Torrance, Scottish theologian. You might surmise that by the name, Thomas Torrance, Scottish theologian. But he, um, he was a chaplain in the army during World War I. And he talks about holding the hand of a dying 19-year-old soldier. And then he talks about later when he became a pastor, young pastor of a parish. And he visited the oldest lady in the parish. And he said they both asked the same question. The 19-year-old soldier who was dying and the elderly woman who was at the doorstep of eternity. And the question was, is God really like Jesus? Is God really like Jesus? And I think behind that question is, can I really trust that when I read the promises of God in Jesus Christ, when I read the promises that Jesus makes, can I really trust that that's God making those promises to me? When I see Jesus and study the life of Jesus, is that really the life of God in the flesh? And he said, I assured them, this is what the scripture teaches. When you see the face of Jesus, you're seeing the face of God. So that is a great promise for troubled hearts. And then there's a third promise that Jesus makes in this passage. And that is that he has great work for us to do as his disciples. I mean, again, think about the context here. Jesus has just said, you're going to fall away from me. Peter, the, 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 the bravest, the boldest, the brashest among you, even Peter's not going to make it through. He's going to deny me three times. And yet, at the end of all this, I have great work for you to do. I mean, that's a promise of restoration and of, of hope. But he makes these remarkable statements here he says um, to his disciples and actually it's for everybody who believes in him he says whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and then the almost unbelievable thing that he says is greater works will he do because I'm going to the father so what does that mean you know that raises a question doesn't it how can we do greater works than Jesus Christ if you Think about the miracles of Jesus turning water into wine, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead in the tomb for four days. What does it mean to do a greater thing than that? Raise somebody from the dead who's been dead five days? 
we know that the disciples, the apostles, we look at the book of Acts and we see that they did some of the exact same things that Jesus did. Some of those exact miracles, healing miracles, raising people from the dead. And that was a sign that God's kingdom had indeed come through Jesus Christ and that his kingdom is a kingdom of healing and it is a kingdom of restoration and it's ushering a new creation. It's a foretaste of the new creation that's to come. So God's kingdom has come in Jesus Christ and his healing power has been released. And we see that in the ministry of the apostles and people are still doing some of those same same things today. God still heals. God still intervenes in miraculous ways. But what about this idea of greater things? Jesus says we will do greater things than he did. Well, I don't think it's about miracles. I think it's about ministry. I don't think it's about the quality of the ministry. I think it's about the extent of the ministry, the scope of the ministry that the church now has. Jesus was confined to a local place and time by virtue of his human nature. Jesus was local. Now the church is global. Now we've gone global because he's at the right hand of the father. And he has sent his Holy Spirit to empower the church and his presence is with us now everywhere. And so the work that we have to do as his disciples is to call people to faith and repentance. Faith in him to repent for their sins and to receive new life in him. In fact, Jesus said in this gospel in John six twenty nine, listen to these words. This is the work of God, the work of God, the same word that he uses here, work. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the work of God. He's telling this to crowds who want to see more miracles. They've just been fed by him in a miraculous way. So now they come to him and they say, what else do you got? That was pretty cool. We want to see some more signs. We want to see some more miracles. He said, okay. You you want to work? You want to sign? This is the work. Believe. Believe in him who who God has sent. And so that is the great work, is to call people to faith in this Christ, to receive new life in him. And I'll just say on Mother's Day, this this is how moms can participate in this great work. This is how grandmas can participate in this great work. They can point their children and their grandchildren to Jesus Christ. And, you know, I'm thankful that I had a mom who did that, a praying mom. Some of my earliest memories is my mom praying beside her bed early in the morning. That does something to you when you see your parents practicing that kind of faith. And then my grandmas who are still alive today on both sides of my family. They're still women of strong faith. And my mom's mom was one of these folks who has taken on this mission of sharing Jesus Christ with others. And she writes to prisoners and she puts things in the newspaper to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a legacy of faith, women, you can leave behind to your children and to your grandchildren. It's part of the greater things that God calls us to. But, you know, I I, I know that we all face seasons in our life when we wonder, what is my mission? What is my purpose? Maybe I've blown it so much that... God doesn't have a work for me to do. Well, he's telling this to disciples who are going to blow it. But then he's saying, when it's all over, you're going to do great things and greater things because of the extent of the ministry that I was even able to do 
Again, not the quality, but the, but the scope of it. It's going to go global. It's going to change the world. And you get to be part of it. And we need to take that on board in our life today. That God has called us to participate in this mission of greater things. And so these are the promises that Jesus gives us. These are the promises that Jesus gives a troubled heart. And I'm reminded, closing here, about an, an illustration that Tim Keller gave. He said, um, he said, imagine, this is kind of fun, imagine that you're a billionaire. And, uh, you know, you're a billionaire living in New York City. Keller's a pastor in Manhattan. And uh, you've got $30 in your pocket. Three $10 bills and you go to pay for your cab fare. It's $8 or so. And you give the guy, or you think you're giving the guy, just one of the $10 bills. But then later on you realize that, that you only got one $10 bill left. What happened to the other one? You know, did you pay him too much? Did the, in the exchange, did the $10 bill fly away? What are you going to do? If you're a billionaire, are you going to freak out about that? Are you going to call the police? Are you going to call the cab company? No. You know, that's, that's nothing. You're not going to be stressed out. You're not going to be anxious. You're just going to shrug and move on. And the point that Keller makes is this. The promises of Christ are invaluable. The promises of Christ are precious. And if you believe these promises, and if you take these promises into the center of your life, then the disappointments that you experience in life, and the suffering that comes, and the illness that comes, and the way that people disappoint you, and you disappoint others, and the, the ministry plans that you had that don't work out, they're not going to crush you. They don't have to lead to despair. They don't have to lead you to shake your fist at God. It's just a $10 bill. And you're a spiritual billionaire because of these rich promises of Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In the meantime, I have great work for you to do. I have a great mission for you to participate in. So don't let your hearts be filled with trouble. Believe in me, Jesus says. Believe in God and believe in me. May God give us the grace to do that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do, do pray that you'll help us, help me, help us to discern the promises that you give us your son, Jesus Christ, that we need to take into the center of our life. Where there's fear and anxiety. Where there's a sense of a, of a lack of purpose. Whether we're suffering through illness, Lord, help us to put these promises and replace the trouble with the promises in our thinking and our feeling. And then to live out of that. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name for His glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.